Hey, y'all. You're listening to Diagnosing Sitcoms and Movies, the DSM podcast. We help make mental health more comfortable by using Black movies and shows we know and love and culture to remove stigma. So join our convo with your host, Courtney Copeland, licensed mental health counselor. And Dr. B, licensed professional counselor. Rosie, I'm excited. I am too. This is one of my favorite movies. Like we, I really say that like a lot on this show, but this is really, really no, like I one of like my that, favorite, favorite. No, but yes, I think this is the movie, other than The Temptations, this is the movie that we go back and forth with with lines. Like, you know, and as soon as you say it, I'd be like, okay, I know what you're doing. I know, I know what you did there. And I'd be ready. So, yes. I agree. This, this movie is what solidified our friendship. You did a quote from this movie. <laughs> In, in Party City one day, and I said, oh, she's my friend. Like, she's my friend friend. We're friends now. <laughs> I don't know if she knows it, but she's my friend now. <laughs> I didn't know, see? Five Heartbeats brings people together. Yes, so guys, we're gonna be talking about, like Rosie said, the Five Heartbeats. All right, so this movie came out in 1991. The film depicts the rise and the fall of an R&B vocal group told through the eyes of one of the heartbeats, Donald Duck Matthews. <laughs> While Robert Townsend's main inspiration for the movie was The Temptations, the Five Heartbeat story is an amalgamation of several artists and groups of that time. Honestly, because Fox didn't want to get sued by Barry Gordy for people thinking that the character Red was supposed to represent him, because, you know, as Petey Green says, you know, he ain't nothing but a pimp, teaching these Mm. kids how to walk, how to talk, and make his money. But anyway, so the singing (laughs) group, The Dells, who are also uh, well-renowned in their own right, and had a four-decade career, became the technical advisors for this awesome awesome movie and very exciting to help us talk about this awesome awesome movie we have mm-hmm. a very special guest with us today mm-hmm. so i would like to introduce the very intelligent the enterprising mm-hmm. Raphael bosley thank you 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 um i definitely consider myself blessed and privileged to be able to be on this podcast with you all just to give a brief introduction as to who i am my name is Raphael bosley I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a helper, I am a servant. However, in this physical realm, I would say I am a mental health coach, or I like to explain it this way. I am a spreader of good news because I'm a minister, but I'm also a sorter of bad news because I am a helper in the form of a mental health therapist. So I'm grateful to be on this podcast. I'm grateful to be able to have, to be under the umbrella of such giants or intellectuals. So I'm hoping it rubs off on me. Um, just so when I get off this call, I can just tell everybody that I'm somebody, you know. So you thank you all for this. Yeah. Not only good. Yeah, look yeah. at my friend. No. <laughs> yeah. I feel so love. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Thank yes, you. Raphael definitely has a, a way with words. He is a wordsman. <laughs> and and with all of his um professional experience as well as the work that he does throughout his community, I felt like this this when he suggested that we do this, I said this is the oh. perfect move, but perfect movie for him. Like oh. Look at God just working all things. I'm just so excited, y'all. I'm I should get the disclaimer on this, though. I should, maybe I shouldn't have said minister because I make cuss <laughs> and quote Mary King. I maybe should have left that off. So God is not done with us. He knows our hearts. We have You're to right. be, Jesus was walking with the people, okay? So You're you right. have to be able mm-hmm. to walk with the people, talk with the people. That's what I'm hey, talking In my mind, Jesus had dreads, fronts, <laughs> and cursed because he had to reach the people. I agree. You know, I, I agree. And I'm learning that more and more, I guess, as I get more spiritual, that he hung out with the people, mm-hmm. you know. 
So that kind of explains why I was just so into Bootsy's new song with the baby. So thank you for that, Courtney. <laughs> also, the yeah. nerd in me also wants to mention that there's this funny historical documentary about curse words on Netflix with mm-hmm. get with the host, Nicolas Cage, where he talks about the origin of all of the curse words that we have. And believe it or not, some of them really have an interesting beginning or start. So you shouldn't really feel bad for saying curse words <laughs> all in all. <laughs> and so to start off the episode, I would like to say my favorite curse word from this movie. It Thanks. is <laughs> use slum dwelling scum sucking slug ass motherfucker. You want oh. my spot flash? Huh? Well, you ain't gonna get it. Cause you ain't got, got it. it. <laughs> down, down, <Yeah>. down <laughs> for the count. <laughs> I can't walk away. <laughs> that was the song that came on literally after, after that. Right, right after, after that, yeah. like such a transition. <laughs> sure. I put that. Da- I put that down as my code, as one of my codes too. So yeah, I like that part. Honestly, yeah. friends, I think that Eddie Kane has the best lines in this mm. movie. Hands down, hands down. No, can't nobody say like Eddie like Kane, Joey. Like, and his voice. It was his voice for me. So. uh Sarge, Sarge was another one of my favorites with his Of course lines. he was. Of course he was. <laughs> he was like, Just as I thought. That ain't shit. Hold my cake. Hold my cake. <laughs> yeah, I put that down too. <laughs> Sarge was always trying to get somebody to hold his cane, especially when he was at the theater. And yeah. he was just like, hold my cane. Step outside and I kick both y'all's asses like you stole something. <laughs> <laughs> I love Sarge. I wish he was my granddad. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Raphael, you want to go? <laughs> yeah, I have a couple, um, but I read. I would say Eddie Kane. Of course, that's my favorite. Eddie Kane, when he was on the bed, um, when the group came in and he said, Just because I have one, two, maybe two drinks sometime, what, I'm an alcoholic now? And the way he <laughs> said way it, he it was said just, it. yeah, it was just it's that. Because like, <laughs> I have one, two, maybe two drinks sometimes, what, now I'm an alcoholic um, now? Yeah. <laughs> A hundred percent. Like he yeah. was speaking Yiddish. I'm an yeah. alcoholic now. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. That was that was uh one of my favorite quotes. And I guess having a background working with those who uh, will fall under the label as addicts, um, that part really connected with me just because oftentimes what I'll have to um I'll say bring up something they did wrong, like a relapse or something, they always be like, Oh, just because I messed up once now, you're all on my back. So just seeing him do that, yeah, that was something. Um, but then also at the end, again, it's Eddie Kane. When they were at the picnic, I really enjoyed when he said, y'all sure y'all want to hang out with old Eddie Kane? Oh, yeah. That was my yeah, part. for sure. Yeah, yeah. 100%. I said it too. For pulling him back in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because Dressa yeah. was mad. Yeah. I mean, let's talk, I mean, we don't have to talk about it right now, but Eddie did a disservice to the group, and Dressa was very upset with him. Yeah. Like he kicked his ass. Because I felt like Dresser was the healthiest. Yes. Okay, we'll we'll come back. We'll come back. We'll come back. Come back. (laughs) time. (laughs) Okay, at the very beginning, when the credits are still rolling, (laughs) Carter Boy says they could have booed or something. They had to hit me upside my head with no bottle. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Quiet Boy. I loved him. And then he turned into the biggest celebrity. Wanted well, yeah, we'll in talk about mind. that. In yeah, his 100%. mind. That's when he changed his name to Rock. Listen, don't, yeah. nobody, don't remember that, do you? <laughs> nobody call you Rock. 
<laughs> look at look at him. Look at choir boy. <laughs> oh my gosh! When Bobby got hit by the car, <laughs> no, yes. when he first got shot. He yes. said, "Oh my good leg!" Then he yeah. got hit by the car. Oh my other leg. <laughs> now, am, am I the only one? Now, you guys can be honest with me with this. Am I the only one who wondered, uh, who was curious about, like Bobby's singing ability? For Bobby to have been the front person. You can only they were imagine. Not even worried about Eddie. They said exactly. Bobby's Eddie too, but we don't really need him. So Bobby must have. Bobby must have been the real deal. He must have been, but what that makes me wonder. Like, exactly. like you said, yeah, I don't think he. I didn't see him as a singer per se. So, because uh, y'all know I'm a nerd, and, and I'll get lost down the rabbit hole. Robert Thompson and Keenan Ivory Waynes are the writers of this film, and they had multiple different rewrites and drafts of the script. And they said that they had different versions where Bobby released the album and sold more than they did. And or we see him in the hospital afterwards mm. and or like ones where <laughs> his single was called Bobby, Bobby, my husband's in the lobby. <laughs> oh, man. What? <laughs> it's a good thing that Bobby got low key written out of this movie because he just wasn't going to make it. Yeah. But uh, well, honestly, you know, Duck had some type of feelings when he found out because he said, I wrote this song, this song in five-part harmony. Five-part harmony. <laughs> <laughs> so he had some explaining to do the Duck. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I have a really random one that just cracks me up, though. When uh, <laughs> John Witherspoon is on the radio and he's talking about the ad for Chanel's, and he said, "Sorry, the fish was bad last week. Some of you got sick, but still, nobody knows fish like Chanel." <laughs> okay, so I have a couple more. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know this is taking a really long time, but this movie is just chock yeah. full of so many good ones. Of mm. course, there's. <laughs> I gotta fight every night to prove my love. Yeah, yeah. I put it down too. I can't wait to get to that one. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that is another good one. <laughs> so I tried to hold off on this one, okay? I tried to hold off, but I'm surprised none of us mentioned Big Red on the balcony. Now, if you have any other problems with your royalties and my books, my office hours are from. My office hours are from. Nice. <laughs> I got my pen on. Yeah. I got my I pen. I bought Rosie a button uh, pen that says my office hours. <laughs> nine to five. On even Sunday, Saturday and Sunday, nine oh, to man. five. Oh man, I don't want to say I did my homework to the extent uh, the extent of Courtney, but. I was watching an interview with Robin Townsend, Robert Townsend, in regards of what Big Red did over the balcony and how they talked about that. That was true back then. But I forgot, and maybe you can help me with this, Courtney. I think the artist that they were kind of connecting it to is Jackie Wilson. So you... apparently several people have gotten. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. No, not <laughs> several. But apparently um, getting hung over the balcony isn't a unique situation in the record industry. I'm sure in um, our age range, our age range, we've heard about Suge Knight hanging vanilla ice over the, <laughs> over oh. the balcony. Yes, that happened as well. But apparently mm. back in the day, that was oh, something. Wow. It was inspired by a real scenario that happened. But from what I understand is that Jackie was not the only 
individual that was involved in a situation <laughs> against yeah. wow. Bird and the Midnight Falcons. Yeah. And see, then he was like, are your birds to get new movements? I need it for Look. Bird. Why was they still doing the same song with the same movements? Yes. <laughs> they couldn't even and remix it? Did y'all catch the a- feather? The feather? Bird no. and the Midnight Falcons. He he always wore a feather, and this was the first time. Like his lapel. This yeah, as a lapel. This like I watched it last night, and that was the first time out of the thousand times that I've watched it that I ever <laughs> noticed the feather. I never so noticed I, that. Exactly. See, so it's like now I finally got it. Big Red was trying to test if he could actually fly. Since your little <laughs> wow. bird, can you fly? Mm. Wow. That's my wow. that's my thoughts. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so my last ones go together, of course. That's when Eddie Kane shows up and he still has his sequence <laughs> outfit on up under that trench coat. And he's dang. dang. <laughs> 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 then, he says, I've been practicing. I've been practicing, y'all. Nice like this. I wish raindrops would fall. <laughs> Oh, it's so sad, but so funny. Oh, yeah. Okay, so this movie, there were so many themes, really, in this movie. So we had, like, five black males bonding, which is something that we don't often really get to see. There's, like, the evils of the recording industry, unjust business practices, racism, you know, the dangers of corny police officers, because black, we hate them. Um, Mm. Abortion, family dynamics, spirituality. I feel like this movie just offered us so much. And I think that's part of why it's it's such a lasting lasting classic, and it's one of everyone's favorite movies. I agree. You know, I even for, I forgot about the the conversation about abortion. I guess I didn't see it as a conversation of abortion. It, it felt like it was a conversation of fatherhood. Mm-hmm. Like you know, this we're here to support you. Take this money, do what you need to do to get you know what you need for your for you and your kid. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But that to me, that was like my first real insight, like as a child, because I'm the movie came out in 91. So mm-hmm. clearly we were small children. I was watching this on VHS uh, yeah. regularly. Um, but that was my first like insight into what like adult male friendship looks like, like men supporting each other and what that looks like. And that was really the biggest issue and the biggest struggle that Dresser kind of dealt with. And I think that's like we were saying before, why Dresser got so angry at Eddie is because I felt like maybe Eddie and Dresser were of they were the closest. Like Mm -hmm. Eddie Dresser might have been the closest to Eddie because when they show like the montage of the different um, pictures of them going throughout their career, Eddie is the one holding Dresser's baby. So I was like, oh, I wonder if Eddie was the godfather of you know him and Brenda's baby he was the one that said didn't you just say that you you love her more than anything and was the first one to give him the money so I thought that maybe that's why Dresser was like so infuriated with Eddie Mm -hmm. and gave them those weird fake acting punches that didn't connect at all and (laughs) (laughs) I I felt like maybe that's why that (laughs) happened because he felt the the biggest level of betrayal there because them two were the closest friends yeah. And also throughout the movie, um, um, Dresser was the one that, I guess, whoever the director was, um, Robert Townsend, the director showing uh, Dresser was the one who corrected Eddie throughout the movie. Mm. He was the only person that did it. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, because he even like made excuses, actually, mm-hmm. for when Eddie wasn't there at Jimmy's house when they were rehearsing and meeting Sarge for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> and he said, no, Eddie, we done talked about this drinking and drug shit before. You said you ain't stopped, so we left you alone. <laughs> and that's why I said with, with that, especially that scene, it felt like Dresden took on this father, the father mm-hmm. figure, like the more mature, responsible one that kept people on time, that kept people, mm-hmm. you know, that made held them accountable, I think, right. you know. But then it's also his character outside of, of um, the five heartbeats. He's always been a father figure. He's always been a leader. And so, I, I, you know, it's so interesting that, that that was his role. I felt like he was in some ways a, the leader in helping keeping them on track. Yeah. I yeah, think it's the we, deep voice. That's why he yeah. gets cast yeah. in that role. <laughs> yeah. I agree. And I think we also got a chance to kind of peek at his, uh, his emotional maturity because of the same scene when um, he was willing to give up the, the group mm. to be able to make more money. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. And I do think that dressers, um, him being the most healthy, lended him to being that like voice of reason throughout the movie. Even when they were upset about the their, their face not being on the record, um, on the album cover, he was like, it's a good idea. We can just like, he's trying to rationalize it for everybody. Yeah. He's trying to calm everybody down, kind of talk things through with people. He knew that was some BS too, but he mm-hmm. just wanted to get everybody to calm down so that they could see maybe there is a bigger picture here. Let's look at both sides. And I think that that lended itself, him being um, in a clear emotional state, lended itself to him being a leader in the group, being a uh, responsible partner to Brenda, because he, it, they never show him messing with no chicks on the road. It was just Brenda coming to visit. Yeah. Or well, <laughs> we didn't get a chance to see any family dysfunction. None of that. Right. And then hopefully him being a good parent to his um, children, despite having to, of course, probably be on the road a lot. But he still, when it came down to that, uh, that accepted speech for their gold plaque, he just said, I want to thank Brenda and our baby. That's it. <laughs> I think even at right. a certain point, he he detached himself from the unnecessary drama too, mm-hmm. as well. He's just like, I'm just here to get my money and my royals. Let me get out of here. Let's not forget about Leon and Lester. Exactly, the cousins. Bro, town. <laughs> <laughs> we rap country and western. They were so doofy. Yeah, hundred percent. But I enjoy how they supported their cousins throughout the mm-hmm. whole movie. They did. They were yeah. always there. Always, yeah. And even that's black Duck- family. Exactly. Exactly. Even when uh, Duck and JT reached uh, a certain level of success, I think it was, I forgot what scene it was, but they were talking to Duck even at the award ceremony, and Duck didn't even ask, act bougie or nothing. He was listening, mm-hmm. like just still shaking his head, like, "Yep, yep." Mm-hmm. Really, yeah, Frotow. Really we'll, we'll do that. <laughs> That's yeah. where I'm going to invest all of my earnings in Frotown, guys. Okay, I'm going to go. There's Tanya Sawyer. I'm going to go get a drink. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of duck. Okay, so we're, we're diving into diagnosis now. I diagnose. I struggle. I struggle because duck was so healthy. But... At first, he assumed it was Choir Boy, that Tanya was having an affair with Choir Boy, and then found out that it was, in fact, JT. Mm. I diagnosed him with major depressive disorder, moderate, and now at the very end of the movie, once they all join hands, impartial remission. I think Y'all looking at me him. like I'm crazy. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I didn't diagnose him. I, I So I was starting with it, right? So I was like, he was 
like really compulsive about his writing. He was like, he wrote it in five part harmony, five part harmony, right? He was adamant about it. But I wouldn't say like, you know, uh, talking out loud with about this, it was like, well, he wasn't necessarily un- compulsive just because you're passionate about something doesn't make you compulsive. Right. So I took it away. Mm-hmm. And I, I unfortunately was not able to find a diagnosis for him. And it's interesting that you mentioned like where they are in certain parts of the movie, because I struggled with that, especially for Eddie too. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to him in a moment. Yes. Um, so the criteria that I had that I felt like fit for the depressive di- diagnosis I'll go over. And then I also felt like there would be a little bit more information that we would have to receive just to make sure that he's reaching full criteria. There, of course, would be more assessment that will go into it. And because we got so little of his current, his state, you know, at the very beginning and at the end before he goes to the church, I wasn't exactly sure. But I did get the depressed mood most of the day, um, as indicated by subjective report or observation made by others and him at being at the podium and saying like a reporter once said that Donald Duck Matthews would be a good writer once he suffers more and I want to thank JT and my and my fiance for that and like he was like today I just feel and so having those negative feelings and then of course the markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day nearly every day so not seeking pleasure in things that once gave him so much passion him being so passionate about his music and that being such a driving force in his life that even when it wasn't writing music, he was writing poetry, all of those things and no longer doing those things. And even at the end, when they do all join hands, him saying like, I haven't sung in years. And -hmm. I felt like that was a representation of him not being able to find pleasure in things that once brought him pleasure because of, I almost was, because of his broken heart. (laughs) They broke his heart. That damn Tanya. He should have left her alone when she got in that red Corvette with that corny dude. Exactly. He did have on bowling shoes though. I don't know if I'd I don't know if I'd talk to him. That was the first time I caught that too. But there is one thing about a Robert Townsend movie. There is always going to be a star-studded cast. Every Mm. movie that this man has ever written, directed, produced, or starred in, it's gonna be some famous people up in there. He is a is a casting genius. Yeah. And definitely when I was watching the, um, the interviews, he's definitely a, just a deep thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, and nothing that he does is by accident. So I think the role of Duck was perfect for him. And like I joked with you guys earlier, I didn't necessarily give any of the Black men any type of diagnosis. However, there's definitely things about them that deserves clinical attention or makes you kind of just go, hmm, I wonder how that affects him. Um, and one of the things with him was the fact that he's he's such a deep thinker. I don't want to necessarily say he disassociated a lot, but he was definitely in tune with his thoughts and he was okay with not having external friends long as he got a chance to be a friend to himself, you know? So that was just very interesting just to see that throughout the movie, even when he aged. Oftentimes the movie went back to him being by himself, left with his thoughts. That was something that I definitely noted. Um, his presentation. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we were just joking. <laughs> it was very unorganized, although his lyrics was organized. It seemed like <laughs> everything else was unorganized. Um, a little bit of, I would say, socially awkward. I guess I'm just listing all of the things that was kind of concerns or red flags. So, you know, y'all, y'all the geniuses. So y'all can tell me, oh, yeah, this falls under this, you know? So do you guys feel as if he was socially awkward? 
Or do you feel like um, that was just him? I felt that he definitely was able to pick up on social cues and he knew how to interact and different things mm-hmm. like that. I do feel like that is something though that we see just that mm-hmm. that twinge of like just differentness. And I feel mm-hmm. like that's necessary for a lot of people who are extremely artistic. I feel mm-hmm. like they have to have that certain level of different because their brain is able to go to that artistic level that mm-hmm. many of us um, just might not be as gifted in. And because they have that strength there, they don't they might not care as much about some of these other things and picking out his clothes i don't know if he thought he looked good or if he just didn't care i don't know what that was but <laughs> i don't know but see every time he showed up at our house he always fixed his clothes he did so i he think did. he cared a little bit always always and I, I was really curious like does this dude think he's matching like, I didn't know. I started to question my own type of style because he wore it confidently. But so when know? I was little, I was like, so was this the style then? And I just yeah. don't know. But and then as I got older, <laughs> I, I don't, I think, I think he had lots of elements that were stylish. Hmm. I think he just wore them all at the same time. There was no reason for him to wear a hound suit hat <laughs> with a polka dot shirt with a different printed jacket. There was yeah. no reason. There was no reason. You're right. Let me put you two on the spot, okay? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of things, actually, I could, but I want to ask you this. Duck, the, if Duck would have approached you two, writing you poems the way he wrote, uh, what was her name again, Nancy? Tanya Sawyer. Tanya, Tanya. The same approach, would it would have worked? The same approach, the same exact approach. If he did it then, it would have worked. If he did it now, I'd have thought he was a crazy stalker and I'd have filed a restraining order on him. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> I, believe you. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm a hopeless romantic, so I'd be like, oh my God, it's so sweet. <laughs> um, and me being me, I probably would have gone on a date with him. In regards of kind of viewing him as being less than, or was it just natural? Like, man, it's bad time and I'm talking to someone else. Or the parent really thinking like, hey, you work for Salvation Army. I think it was all of the above. I think Mm -hmm. it was a social class um, judgment that was being Mm -hmm. represented with her giving him the Salvation Army box of saying like, oh, that must be why you're here because why else would anybody that looks like you be here Mm -hmm. speaking at my door? And so there was that representative. I think that there was like the, the... Tanya didn't seem like she was engaged with him in a manner where that would be like if the mom walked past, she was mm-hmm. there wasn't comfortable conversation. Like Tanya was looking at the ground and her body cues yeah. were kind of like, I don't know this man. I don't think you should come around anymore. Like that's what she was communicating. So I think it was a, a, a okay judgment for the mom in that regard if she was just going off of Tanya. But I do think that there was being more, there was more that was being communicated with it being a Salvation Army box because it was clearly labeled a Salvation Yes, I I think what what Robin Townsend was doing with this particular moment was letting the viewers know, okay, she's shallow. Mm -hmm. She's very shallow. Um, She's looking for a man who who has himself like he's more affluent, you know, and I mean, looking where she's coming from. That's what she's wanting in return. And then also that's why it's also troublesome later in the movie when he actually has, uh, when she is, you know, interested in him now that he's at this certain status, mm. you know? Um, and then, I mean, uh, I guess JT, 
maybe she was into JT because he was also a celebrity as well. So I feel like this just lets us know that she was shallow. She was no good to begin with. She, he shouldn't have even been interested in her. And had he not even been interested in her, he would have still been a part of the five heartbeats. Making hits to this day. So this is what I feel. <laughs> this is what I feel. All right. You can take the two cents or leave it. So with Duck, Duck is definitely a hopeless romantic. Absolutely. And I think mm-hmm. he's loyal to whatever story he comes up with in his mind. Mm-hmm. So immediately they were dancing with, with Sarge when she walked through and the mm-hmm. way he looked at her. So instantly he created yes. a, a story because later we learned that's oftentimes how he writes because he was talking to JT and JT says something like, hmm, this makes for a good song. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You got yeah. to go into to dick rehabilitation. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote that down as one of my quotes too, but yeah. I was gonna my write. name is JT Matthews and I can't control my dick. Yeah. He's like, man, I'm what being they serious. Do to it? I don't know. You work with some mannequins. Yeah. I'm like, mannequins. I didn't catch that the first time until I uh, watched it yesterday. So, yeah. So with, so, with Doug, I personally felt as if he gave her a chance because of this story. Like, mm-hmm. I get to complete, you know, and even with the five part harmony that kind of exposed his, not just his loyalty, but his obsession mm-hmm. with completing what's, what's up here. Yeah. Does it make sense? Yeah. So, so then guys, are we changing our diagnosis to ex- obsessive compulsive behavior? Having well, these see, having these ruminating yeah. thoughts and uh, be driven to compulsion. Rosie, you said that that was something that you did consider at one point in time. You want to go through the criteria for us so we can see if we are um, ditching major depressive and going to, or if both could exist at the same time. Okay. So for the diagnostic criteria, it says presence of obsession, compulsion, or both. So for obsession is recurrent, persistent thoughts, urges, and Im- or images that are experienced at some time during the disturbance. The second one is individual attempts to ignore or suppress such thoughts, urges, or images, or to neutralize them with some other thoughts or action. Um, which would then go into the compulsive part, which are defined as repetitive behaviors or mental acts. Um, So the repetitive behaviors is hand washing. Uh, Mental acts would be praying, counting, repeating words silently Um, that the individual feels driven or driven to perform in response to an obsession according to the rules. Um, And then another one is the behavior or mental acts are aimed at preventing or reducing anxiety or distress or preventing some dreaded event or situation. So because of some of the criteria, both for the obsession and compulsion, I really couldn't see certain behaviors from him that indicate that he was he meets this diagnosis. Okay, so that sounds like the criteria for a specific obsessive compulsive disorder. Did you think about excessive compulsive personality disorder? Because that's kind of where my brain went while Raphael was talking. And the criteria for that is more so um, a, well, the criteria list, uh, when we can go through and see which ones fit and which might ones might not. Uh, preoccupied with details, rules, lists, order, organizations, or schedules to the extent that the major point of activity is lost. Perfectionism that interferes with task completion. Excessively devoted to work and, pro- and productivity to the exclusion of leisure activities. 
over conscientious, scrupulous, and inflexible about matters of morality, ethics, or values, <laughs> or his music, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is unable to discard worn out or worthless objects, even when they have no sentimental value, like them bowling ball shoes, uh, mm-hmm. is reluctant to delegate tasks or work to others unless they submit to exactly his or her way of doing Ooh. things, pushing that man mm-hmm. off the piano, uh, adopts a uh. visibly. <laughs> This is, this, this is him. This is him. Look at us, guys. Yeah. So he's not necessarily obsessive compulsive. He has the personality. He meets the traits of the personality disorder. So yes, I think this is Doug uh, Duck <laughs> to the T. <tea. laughs> I love it when like we collaborate on diagnosis and it comes together organically. It makes me feel like scientists. Like, oh, look at the look at the brain. I'm not gonna lie, y'all. That made me feel good. And I ain't do nothing but read the DSM. I'm like, I want to take a picture. Like, let me send that to my professor. Like, look here. I love it. <laughs> we did talk a little bit about um, JT already, and I just wanted to take a second, take a beat and tell you guys how much I feel like I have grown (laughs) through as a therapist, as a diagnostic professional Mm -hmm. through working through these diagnoses for these characters because it really was a task to remove my feelings that I had for these characters Mm -hmm. and view them objectively in order to make diagnosis. Like, I love JT. I don't want JT to be a bad person. Yeah, him made a mistake. I mean, Tayu was cute. They was around. It happens Mm -hmm. all the time. They said that they wrote this from real situations. You know, Mm -hmm. women would be on the bus and they would, you know, go town to town with them and there's only so many women on the bus. So then the next one end up falling in love with her and then it happens. And JT's just not a bad guy. That's our brother. Excuses. Hmm. Excuses are what? Monuments of nothingness. Yeah, JT won't shit. Hold on, say that again. again. (laughs) Excuses are monuments of nothingness. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Fingers. I didn't write it. I didn't write it. I really do think JT did care about Duck. Yeah. I really do. Because what did he say? All right, if you do love him, even look, even with his feelings being hurt, because, you know, that was a shot of his pride. JT has definitely oh. had pride issues big time. Oh, yes. That damn sock. In yes. His <laughs> that was Duck. That was Duck. <laughs> oh, no, that was Duck. He, yeah. he was talking shit. Yeah. Like, like, again, it shows that he has a fragile, um, fragile ego, right? Mm-hmm. So at this particular part, he his confidence is out there like, hey, you don't love him. You love me. Mm-hmm. And she said, no, I do love you, but what? I'm in love. I'm with in Doug. love. I'm in love with that. Yeah. And even his, again, natural, you can see it all over his face that his ego immediately shattered. But still, his love stepped in and said, you know what? If you do love him, you got to tell him. No, actually, I'm going to say it correctly. If you do love him, you have to tell him the truth. Or then tell him the truth. That's that's what he said. You may be right. I was distracted by Leon's <laughs> yeah, it was it was a lot of that. It was a lot of high pitch and whispering, yeah. and I was I was confused mm-hmm. as to why that was the method he wanted to communicate that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it was he was emotional. So do you think that was the first time he's ever lost a girl to his brother? Well, see, because yes, they, yes, because they used to do shy brother. Mm-hmm. So because that was their dynamic and how they pulled the ladies. It's mm. almost like that's a it, it was almost kind of going to be the the demise 
of their whatever relationship could have that could have grown. So it was like, did they do the shy brother routine? Mm. You know, to get the women that they were really wanting to be with long term, or is that with just for a one night stand type thing? Mm. Um, so then was she just like a subject of shy, of shy brother? And mm. so therefore she fell for one and they also fell for the other. I would just like to ask a question. Uh, Raphael, does shy brother really work? Because I have some friends yeah. from, from high school who swear by it. Yeah. So that interesting thing is this. It does. So, of course, I grew up, just to give a little bit about me, I grew up in the whole, quote unquote, church environment. Um, and one of the things we did annually was go to church convention. And mm-hmm. for those who's listening and don't know about church conventions, it's just like an assembly of those who subscribe to a certain denomination. We meet together, you. So there's thousands and thousands of people, right? Um, and of course, we're young. So you get an opportunity to meet young ladies from different places. And I have siblings. In fact, it's like, and I have cousins, like it's about 10 of us all the same age. So five heartbeats big in the, and I don't want to say the hood, but the hood, right? So we, every anywhere we went, we did the whole shy brother. Um, oftentimes I was forced to be the one to necessarily go up and talk just because maybe compared to them, they thought I can like talk a little bit better. You were uh, the wordsmith then. That no, you yeah, are no. now. <laughs> I did not. I th- you know, I thought maybe they hyped me up, you know, maybe a little bit. I could maybe carry a conversation or something, but it worked. I, I I remember specifically just going up and like, hey, look, my brother, he's a little shy, but he's interested in you. Uh, we stand at this hotel or whatever we was at for the convention. But it was just very just it was very easy, but it worked. Oh, my God. It, it worked. But but see, fortunately, what we had working on our side, you're new, you're traveling, you know, and most times, how can I say it? You're, you're there for a week. So. They probably have the same intentions as we have. They just need someone to take the first step. So Shy Brother gives you the opportunity to take the first step. So Hold on, Jesus. I'm here for a short time. I'm here for a good time. That's not a long time. <laughs> yeah, it works. Crazy thing is this. And I, I personally believe this. And you guys totally can be like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. I still feel as if the Shy Brother strategy or philosophy works nowadays, even with adult women. Really? I mean, I would think it wouldn't work anymore because of social media mm. let me let me hear which elaborate for me especially with people like meeting more so online like mm-hmm. maybe it wouldn't necessarily work the same way because you're just like oh okay let me look up this person you kind of exchange social media type thing it's like it's not as come, come like when, when it comes down to like spitting game or trying to like get somebody's different like you know contact the easiest way is using um, social media, which is Snapchat. Mm. We ain't got to do Shy Brother no more because, like, you're not going to bring your brother phone with him and be like, he want to know what your Snapchat is because he's shy. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess, so, uh, I do agree with you 100% in that regard. So I would say this, that philosophy works in the setting that allows it. Right. Does it make sense? So if it's yes. older and they don't want to be like, yo, what's your Snapchat? But it's one of those things you just talking to like, hey, who you here with? I'm like my friend over here. Um, and maybe we don't label it as shy, right? Maybe it's my friend okay. over here um, that's interested. Um, and whatever else I got to say in that moment that'll come to me, you know, I think it may work. But well, let, let, Let's just be direct. Would it work with you two? Let's just no. say no. right away. No. It wouldn't. No. What would be your pushback? Because both of you said it aggressively. Like, so on here with your pushback. If you're interested, you come over here. You and that's what you would say in that moment. Let me see. What would I say in that moment? 
I know, oh, really? but I would say I've said it. Tell you put you go first. <laughs> you would? So, so it's not so much that you were totally. So then that works, Rosie. Like that's what I was about to say. Point. It's working on you. It's You're not, saying tell like, him to come over here. Yeah. And so then, if he's coming over, but then no, but then it's also a limitation too for the person who is putting the faith in the brother because JT did it that night. You. JT took his woman at night, so You're it right. doesn't necessarily work. I mean, you have to have a, a good teammate. I feel yeah. like we'll talk about JT's diagnosis on why I feel like things like that were happening and Hell, continuing to happen I with JT. Um, yeah, I just, I would say, um, I would look at said part shy and I would say, he's too cute to have low self-esteem. I'm not interested. Anyway, and go back and to what I was would, doing. I do believe that wholeheartedly. <laughs> not lying. I would, I would not lie to you. So I, I would say I appreciate that about you and I know for sure of that because my introduction just to you and getting exposed to your personality I believe it but you'll say it with love I don't think it would be in the sense of just total rejection that's interesting thank you both for answering that but if you have a, a partner like JT you never know what might happen and so okay. that is why I want to come like, back come to his diagnosis Okay, so narcissistic personality. These are the ones that I, the criteria I felt like met him. Has a grandiose sense of self-importance. Preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Requires excessive admiration. Has a sense of entitlement. Is interpersonally exploitive. Takes advantage of others to achieve his or her, his or her ends. Is often envious of others or believes that others are envious of him and shows arrogant, haughty behaviors or attitudes. Okay, I guess you're right. Especially when it comes down to Flash. JT could not, he could not stand Just Flash. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Take my coat, baby. Hold it like you holding me. Ooh, how do I feel? <laughs> that was probably Her my man. favorite part of the movie. Yes. You know, top three, hands down. Her man left. He was like, yeah. fuck this. I can't compete yeah. with these motherfuckers. <laughs> I actually asked myself, like, what would I do? And I asked myself this last night. Yes. What would I do if I was in that moment? A what would you do? Car ride home. Man, I don't, you, you know, man, I, it's easy for me to be like, oh, it's nothing. But at that moment, my ego. Because mm. you never can get that out of your mind. Mm -mm. You know, so mm -mm. I don't know. And I don't think her with the jacket. She's yeah, I, th I think yeah, I think it's one of those. We have to turn into yeah, just you know what? You have the upstairs. I'm gonna have the downstairs for a while. Let me think this one through. Right, and then you could tell like every time she would say something, he'd be like, "Oh, you going you wearing that for JT?" Like, yeah. petty. <laughs> oh man, I would be <laughs> petty for sure. One of those. You know, the I, argument would be, "Where's the number?" Yeah, give me the number. <laughs> mm. <laughs> he gave you his number. Where's the number? Where give me the number. It? Oh, it's so bad. Okay, so, but I struggled with this because I, I I didn't feel that, and this is why I'm really hung up on whether or not JT is narcissistic. Mm -hmm. I don't feel that he lacks empathy. No, because yes, he cared about Yes, he cons dark. people. Yes, he cons people. He tricks them. He manipulates them. Uh, I thought you were a woman, not a young girl afraid of life when they was up Ooh. in the coat closet. Mm -hmm. That is terrible game. Don't you ever do that to no women, male listeners out there that don't, don't do that to women. Mm -hmm. um, he did that. He did that. I tricked you and then had to fight. I got a night. I got to fight every night to prove my love. I had to fight that man. Like he did all of those things, but I don't feel like he lacked empathy. And while that's one of the criteria, you don't have to necessarily fit all of them in order to 
qualify for that diagnosis it's just such a strong one it's such a mm-hmm. a pivotal one for that diagnosis that i was like is it narcissistic or is it histrionic because of the 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 um the seductive and sexual nature of histrionic personality disorder i just <laughs> I just, well, you, and because you, I love JT, I don't want him to be a narcissist. <laughs> well, when you talk about um, his behaviors, it's usually in in context with his with his sexuality, and and so I think it would be appropriate for histrionic. Um, okay, I'll go through the criteria of histrionic. Yeah, because I did I did end up diagnosing flash with histrionic personality disorder. After I got out of my feelings, cause I we're supposed to hate Flash. Fuck Flash. Wait, like, wait, hold on. Flash is a bad guy. <laughs> Flash is like, insane. Yeah, I, I had to take on that. Like Flash um, was really just taking, being an opportunist in, in, in the record industry. I noted that. Like the record industry is cutthroat. The record industry, you had to dry. It's all about your next single. It's all about your next project. And he really Mm -hmm. was just looking out for himself, which is the, which, which most people don't do, especially in groups. And which is why a lot of people end up in terrible contracts. They end up being successful and then not having any money to show for it later. And, and like, if you really think about it, he wasn't that bad. Like, Eddie was trying to bait him so hard mm-hmm. every time he walked away from Eddie. Yeah. The time when he said, how's it feel to be me? He didn't say anything when he really could have. Like, he could have read mm-hmm. Eddie for filth. Like, nigga, you are standing here looking like cocaine Freddy. Like, get out my face. But he didn't. He just walked away. <laughs> when he said, you want my spot flash? Hmm? Mm-hmm. All he did was close the door. And like, he really did not like he just wasn't as bad of a guy as I wanted him to be. OK, and so I diagnosed him with histrionic personality disorder. And the criteria for that is, is uncomfortable in situations in which he or she is not the center of attention. Mm-hmm. Interactions with others are often characterized by inappropriate, sexually seductive or provocative behavior. I likened mm-hmm. that to the beginning when he stole JT, the girl that JT was trying to get to the go. Um, displays rapidly shifting <laughs> and shallow expression of emotions. Consistently mm-hmm. uses physical appearance to draw attention to self. Show self-dramatization, theat- theatricality, and exaggerated expression of emotions. Mm. And is con- pause, pause, considers- pause. A key moment for that was when he broke down his philosophy on how you get women. And he said, I'll break I- down a cry in the heart. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And if they tell somebody I cry, yeah. I just lie. I just lie. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry for interrupting you. I just had to add that. Like, yes, that's the moment. That's yeah. him. That's him. That's yeah. him. Is suggestible, um, which I didn't feel like for JT, but I did feel like for Flash because when Flash is with the doggone five horsemen at the end of the movie, I said this was some record producer stuff. That that side profile. This is terrible. Oh man, that was the funniest <laughs> thing to me. I'm sorry, y'all. I know we're supposed to hate Flash, but I that part was hilarious. <laughs> he sold out. No, he Flash, did. no. <laughs> but this is the thing. This is why I said it's so funny. Everybody disliked it, but Flash accepted it. And he like, like you said, opportunist. He's like, yeah. oh, another group, <laughs> another, another time for me to make some yeah. money. They white. Okay, I'll be the lead. <laughs> 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 I mean, I think so. We, it, it sounds like we agree for Flash. Hmm. I think I, I agree for, JT. for JT is too. I think JT yeah. fits him as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, and I know I'm, I'm like popping up with all these surprise questions. Daniel can keep it or lose it, whichever. I'm okay with it. 
But I want to ask you all now, um, of course, 2021 is very different than 1991. Mm. But when it comes to <laughs> males and it comes to women in general, how do you guys feel about a man? Um, I don't even want to say emotionally aware, but is emotional. I think it's necessary. I it, mm. I would I would really like support and celebrate and lift up a man that was able to be authentically emotional. Like if he's like JT and just crying for like vagina mm-hmm. and like I'm like why are you crying right now I just said no like yeah. <laughs> then that I would be like oh he doesn't know how to control or handle his emotions that would yeah. be a little bit of a red flag and unless yeah. he can get you to a place where maybe you can self-regulate a little bit better then I don't have anything to do with you but mm-hmm. if you are like um in con- in connection with your emotions and allow yourself to fully express and experience your emotions, mm-hmm. I feel like that is a healthy thing that needs to yeah. happen. And I celebrate all black men that are at the place where they can do it. And I am more than welcome, more than happy as a friend to assist uh, more reach that place and as a professional to, uh, to teach mm-hmm. the skills necessary to be able to do that as well. Yeah, great answer. I think for me, um, I would, if that was something that was to happen to me, I would feel that, wow, he's different, you know? And I think that's what JT is trying to also convey here is that I'm willing to be different. I'm willing to set myself apart, knowing that a lot of black men tend to not show that side, that that was his way of manipulating the situation to show this is this is why you should give me a chance. This is why I'm different from the other guys is because I'm willing to do this with you. I'm willing to go there with you and show you these emotions. So me being the type of person that I am, I am very emotional. It would be like, wow, he's so he's so different. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, what's he talking about? But if it comes down to, oh, I, I'm I'm crying to convince her to do something that I want her to do, then to me it's like, okay, you have to grow up. You can't yeah. just use your emotion to to convince or try to convey a certain way. You use your words as well. You know, you can take those emotions and turn them into vocabulary that that expresses where you are, you know, and you don't necessarily have to act out, cry and do all these things. But again, to me, I feel like because it's not as common with certain men that I've dated before for them to express themselves, it would be like, wow, look at him expressing himself. He's such a great person. Like, you know. Now, do you I, feel that that manipulation, though, is what makes JT narcissistic? Absolutely. And that's what makes Okay, so then we'll go back. He's narcissistic then. Flash yeah. is histrionic. JT is narcissistic because of his continued use of manipulation. So, oh, yeah. Well, no, because with histrionic, though, I'm sorry. I'm sorry because that's why histrionic. When it says show self dramatization, theatric theatricality, yeah, mm-hmm. theatricality, crying, and so the crying, yeah, you know. So if you get into that point, or like, I think especially, I think I've seen it more so with anger, not necessarily crying, like mm-hmm. a guy trying to show that he cares about something, but then turning it into anger, and it's like, what the fuck are you angry about? I was the one yeah. that came that was upset about, it, and now you're angry. Mm. That to me is like inappropriate, like like sh- expression of emotion, if you will. But mm. yeah, I don't know if I'm answering that question. No, no, no. Well, for me, I'm not sure for Courtney, but for me, you both answered it like well, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's still narcissistic. <laughs> Fine. Okay. So what you got? What you got for Eddie? Oh, 
Eddie Kane Jr. Not King, Kane. I gave him um, substance use disorder, severe, um, and at the end of the movie, of course, in sustained remission. Uh, I just based it loosely as substance use disorder because it did at one time well from the beginning of the movie we did see a progression so it started with the alcohol then we see the cocaine but it's the 60s and 70s so I'm assuming that there was some other stuff up in there too probably a couple quaaludes whatever what else um but we did not get the the full um knowledge of exactly what he was using at the time so I gave it a broad substance use disorder severe and it, I have it as a result of his mother being an, an enabler, his father being a uh, substance abuser. Uh, we hear that he's an alcoholic um, at the very least. And his father having that disapproving parenting style. Dr. Gottman lists that as uh, those that judge and criticize their child and their emotional expressions, like believing negative uh, things about their children and that they often those children learn that them themselves uh, or their feelings are wrong and appropriate and they're not valid. And that is then they kind of internalize that and then grow to feel that something is inherently wrong with them because of the way that they are or the way that they feel. And it gives them a hard time to regulate their emotions. And since I felt that he didn't learn how to regulate uh, those emotions effectively, he did turn to substances. I agree. I gave him an um, unspecified other substance related disorder because, again, when you go to the end, you, he's clean, he's, you know, working on his sobriety. And so I didn't want to necessarily, I think that's the struggle with a movie like this is that you go from the beginning and get to the end. And so you're like, okay, where am I diagnosed? What life stage am I diagnosing them in? you know, especially versus the beginning. So if I if I would definitely have it for alcohol disorder, like you said, Courtney, alcohol use disorder in the beginning, but then in the middle, there's like this uncertainty of what he's actually using and what he's doing. And then of course, at the end where there's, uh, where he's in remission or sobriety. And so I chose just to say unspecified other and not necessarily go into the to the details and criteria of it all. I think I would let me to that to do a little bit more with the criteria is because his preferred treatment method was the narcotics anonymous. And mm -hmm. I know with them, they feel like kind of more of that disease model and that you are always um, an addict and that you are recovering. And so like, and that was with him. So it's still a substance use disorder. It's just in sustained remission. Like he has it under control for right now because that is the method that he's going with. And he was like, you know, that one day at a time, that one step at a time, like though that's the the foundation and the the fundamental beliefs that Narcotics Anonymous, as long, along with AA and all of those have in common. And so I felt that it would, that disease model would fit with that diagnosis. Yeah. I think that's why I struggle with with working in substance abuse at times um, is because of the disease model um, with having to label, you know, the the use, you know, I'm an alcoholic, I am this, I am that. And I've actually had conversations with a few of my students in substance abuse is like, how healthy or therapeutic is it for someone to actually identify themselves as their disorder? So you never really have a person go into, a, say, a depression and anxiety group and say, hi, my name is so-and-so and I am depressed and anxious, right? And so, you know, especially with the two, I guess, professions um, and understanding, like 
I think I think substance abuse counselors have a different approach in theory that they use than what someone who is in like clinical mental health. But that's just I think they have a different way of counseling and, and doing treatment. What do you think, Raphael? What both of y'all said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I'm loving it though. That's why I just keep smiling. I'm like, you know what? They don't inspire me to like pull up YouTube and really learn this stuff. Because I'm like, here it is. I'm just putting literally just highlight things that I thought like, eh, this deserves attention. And y'all just come on off reading. But um well, we have again, been kind of like doing a show. So yeah, like, we, we, I, we got practice. Don't but I love it. That's why I, that's literally the reason for this big smile that you may see periodically. It's like I'm really loving this. Yeah, um, I'll say, uh, well, I jokingly said it, but I meant it everything you guys said. I actually put a question mark after adjustment disorder, but I think that kind of falls under what you guys kind of already have diagnosed them because the adjustment of being famous, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. just simply that that's all of them really could get that. But he really adjusted to being famous, uh, had to adjust to the fame outside of necessarily having a immediate model on how to handle the money, how to handle the attention, right? Because the addiction came, well, I don't wanna say he didn't have addiction prior. We got exposed to his addiction by Big Red's friend. Do you remember that? Big yeah, Red's friend was the one that was partnered with them. Monroe, he looked like a Monroe too. Mm. Yeah, once he got partnered Monroe with Monroe. was his get drugs dude. We had this conversation yeah. in the Temptations episode, Rosie. Remember, yes, whenever it's a dude don't. that's just around and he don't have no clearly defined job yeah. title, that's the go get drugs dude. And everybody yeah. pay attention to him because he's going to be everybody's downfall. Yeah, mm. he and he was. And unfortunately, because of that adjustment disorder, he wasn't necessarily prepared for it. So the lack of boundaries, healthy boundaries being in place kind of spiraled all of these other things, whether it was beginning with the gambling and then, of course, the drug usage that we've seen. Um, But even with the lack of boundaries, I would say with the drug addiction caused him to make, uh, I would say he didn't influence Jimmy. I mean, not influence Jimmy, influenced Big Red with that decision, but he played his part in it. Mm -hmm. Does it make sense? I feel like, yes, I agree and kind of, because I feel like... um, Yes, Big Red knew what was going on. Big Red mm-hmm. probably picked Eddie out and was like, that's my end right there. Yeah. And you sent Monroe to him and probably was getting information back from Monroe too. And mm-hmm. because because Big Red is Big Red, yeah. and yeah. I feel like he probably started putting those bugs in Eddie's ear. Because if you listen that one time... uh when before he fusses at Flash, he's like, Big Red put my coattails to you a long time ago. So I don't mm-hmm. feel like it was Eddie's decision as much as it was Big Red manipulating Eddie and using his drug addiction, feeding him the drugs, telling him that he's the star, feeding that the, those, those empty spaces. He needed that, that stable father figure because of his situation from before. And I feel like Big Red kind of played into that. He knew that he recognized Eddie's weaknesses use that yeah. against him to push uh, to try to push Jimmy out and then because Jimmy wouldn't just bend to his whim mm. murdered my man yeah so would, what would you and it may not even get a diagnosis but for after that happened with the Jimmy incident that he was aware of his influence um, or being a pawn and what happened to Jimmy that level of distress or what we would label as guilt 
Mm-hmm. What, what would that I mean? Think, I think he went and he binged. Mm. I think he went through a, a very hard time, which yeah. led him to go through his his place of sobriety and finding um, what's her what was her name Rose Baby Doll oh. Baby Doll, Baby doll. Yeah. Baby doll. <laughs> and getting back in touch with Baby Doll. I mean, and understanding. I think it, that Baby Doll was also his his conscious. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when he when he set her away and pushed her away that's when he that's when he started to spiral so I think when he found her way when he found his way back to her I felt that that gave him his conscience again and it made him and she made him realize you know what yeah you you did say those things but it it wasn't necessarily you it was a place where where you were at the time and you were under the influence it wasn't you it was the drugs that motivated you to do that you know and so because it takes a lot of a lot of um, compassion and self-regard to to get yourself from out of a place like that to be healed and able to sing in a gospel choir. Now, is he is he a saint? No, but I think that he definitely had to go through some some things mm-hmm. and definitely hit a rock bottom before yeah. he got up. Actually, I think they said that he w- there was a a fire that he was a in shootout shootout a shootout yeah. a shootout with the police. Yeah. He was robbing yeah. a liquor store. Mm-hmm. So that was his ultimate low, and I think sometimes. Especially with substance abuse, you got it. You see people hit their absolute rock bottom before they make it to their recovery and yeah. healing. And, and something else happened with with Eddie and Doug um, that I feel is noteworthy is when they were on the bed after our favorite part of because I had one or two drinks. When Doug looked at him and said, "You're no better than your old man," he mm. said, "You worse than your old." Worse. Man. Let me thank you for that correction. Imagine that though. Mm-hmm. Imagine, that that, oh, mm-hmm. it hit him, made him mm-hmm. fight Doug, right? It did. But, and, and I don't know what you guys' background is, but imagine making it a goal of yours not to be like a certain parent. And then your own decisions put you at a place where when you look in the mirror, you appear to be worse. Mm. So I, like, I couldn't imagine when, if my friend was to affirm my identity with that, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess that was probably him. Literally, I don't want to. I don't want to put that on Duck as that statement sending Eddie in this whole relapse of binge mode. But I, I personally feel that level of truth is enough to make a person go get high. Oh, he really he held yeah. a mirror up to Eddie that Eddie yeah. didn't want didn't want to see that image. Mm. And I feel like with the guilt that y'all are talking about and the binging. And all of that that led us to the dang moment. <laughs> um, and again, why we can't hate Flash as much as we would like to. Flash didn't take Eddie's, just like remove Eddie from the group. They didn't kick him out to replace him with Flash. Like Eddie, we're assuming probably did go binge after the the funeral and the oh god, I didn't know. And then he was at that place where Baby Doll did have to come back and take care of him. Because when they first walk in the house, Duck kisses Baby Doll and says, thank you for coming back and taking care of Eddie. Mm -hmm. And then that is where Eddie is like, guys, I don't think I'm going to sing anymore. Everybody Mm -hmm. knows that it wasn't an accident. And so it was his decision to leave, like all of all of his decisions and seeing all of those things, having Duck tell him that all of that was coming together. And which is what made the decision of I don't think I'm going to sing right now. 
and everybody knows that this wasn't an accident. And so that is when they replace, um, that's when they bring in Flash. So that's why we can't hate Flash because he didn't take the spot. It was kind of given to him. But also I think that all of the guilt and the stuff that y'all are talking about is what um, drove the decision of I'm not going to sing again. And then with the goal of I'm going to get better. But because that didn't happen and he continued to binge, that is why we get the um, the him trying to come back. Like, I've been working, y'all. I've been working, y'all. I'm, I'm, I'm okay now. But it, he, he really wasn't. He still wasn't better yet. He needed God. He needed to go get saved. Sometimes just, you know, getting clean on your own ain't enough. Eddie didn't have the skills. I feel like spirituality picks up where you, where you are deficit in. And so I feel like he needed to get saved in order to have that, for him personally, in order to have that sustained um, practice of um, sobriety. And again, with the treatment modality of NA and groups, having a higher power is a part of that model as well. And so that's why I feel like it was necessary for him to, to go on that complete journey. So talking about that, Choir Boy actually stepped up and gave him his card and said, call me. And I think that was where um, he found, you know, that spirituality, found that place and being back um, in church and, well, not back in church, but in church was because of Choir Boy. Uh, did any of us get a diagnosis for Choir Boy? I did. You did? Let I me did. hear it, girl, because I, I was like, we need to talk more about his spiritual walk because to me that was more so the, the issue that it was a diagnosis. But I want to hear it. Let's go. Let's go. Well, see, I don't even know if I really like this diagnosis. It's a reach. I'm reaching. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, and it's funny because I'm as a black boy, I'm giving him operational defiant disorder only what? because I know, I know. But he acted out. He acted out. Give me a second. And I, mm. I don't know what other I don't know what other diagnosis would go with this because he did act out um against his parents and what they wanted him to do and where they wanted his career to be in. And I say that because like he, you you see him going through these stages of like, okay, I'm not going to tell them. Then finally they find out because he's, he's having to do a tour. He's having to convince them, you know, that he's going to be okay. He's getting the, he's getting preached to by his father as he's trying to make this decision for himself as a man. And then also then finally just kind of giving up um, his identity as choir boy and then taking on the identity as rock. And so <clears throat> because of that, it made me feel like he was being defiant against what his parents wanted for him. So that's why I said it was a huge reach for me to say oppositional defiant disorder. But I, I don't know. I just I think we should take the, the oppositional defiant disorder away and then just talk about who he was and how he developed from being choir boy to rock and then choir boy again. Yeah. He was, I definitely didn't, I tried to look for a diagnosis with him like in all seriousness and I couldn't find nothing. Again, this is probably me looking at it through my own lens of maybe knowing what it's like to be a church boy or a choir boy. I personally think what we seen was just the side effects of living a sheltered life. Um, living a sheltered life with what some people will call with, living a sheltered life in church, but find the secular world attractive, right? Um, and as a result of that, I think he did what most, I don't want to say most of us, but what most people do. He found a group that accepted him and he felt as if he, he look, you really didn't hear him cussing. You literally did. He didn't even change his conduct. 
only thing that changed was his sanctuary wasn't filled with pews, but it was filled with concert seats. So he remains. All he wanted insane. was women. He That's just, all. He, he even in the hallway, even in the hallway. Do you remember the scene when Eddie Kane was like choir boy and there were women? They said choir boy. Mm-hmm. Choir You're boy. You're right. It's just yeah. so it's that. It's just that he grew up in a shelter, got exposed to life, you know, and then he went back. He's like, you know what? I don't want to make this my lifestyle. I just want to try the restaurant. I just want to see what it's like, mm-hmm. you know? And then I think he went back because he knew what was home. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I feel like it was, um, he really was just experiencing normal development. I feel like he was getting to the, granted, they were playing the same actors throughout Mm -hmm. fundamentally different life stages. And so I think sometimes we forget how young that they were supposed to be when they were first getting signed. And I feel that he really um, hadn't, he might have just been a late bloomer. And so he might have got to a little bit later than everybody else that kind of push him back and testing boundaries with his parents and mm-hmm. what their vision of um, his life should be and what he wanted for himself. And I really feel like he really was just going out there and really finding his identity, testing out different things, what tr- really like actively trying on different personas to find mm-hmm. himself. Because like you were saying before, he did live a very sheltered life. And so it, to me, it was um, him really just trying on those different personas, trying to find where he fit. Because yes, he did have a group that accepted him, but I think the group accepted him more than he accepted himself. And so I feel like he really was just on a path of finding what he wanted his life to look like. He didn't stray too far from his fundamental beliefs. Like you said, he wasn't um, cussing. We didn't see him excessively drinking. We didn't see him engaged in any drug use. He really was just like girls, like girls, 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 girls. And that is something that a lot of young men experience, especially in that age range is girls. (laughs) And so once he really like grew through, um, grew past and grew through it and had those experiences, he found what fit him what didn't what things from the church that he learned that he wanted to hold on to and what things that he learned from the church that might not have fit what exactly he wanted his life to look like and I feel like that is part of not only development, but also your walk with God. The more that you learn about yourself, you learn the the things that other people might have taught you. That doesn't fit the relationship that you built with God. So it might be it might have to look different because the relationship that you built God is okay with this. They yeah. might have said today, but you you talk to God regularly. Me and yeah. Jesus is my homeboy. He said yeah. it's okay. Like, <laughs> and he said he will accept me, you know, as, as long as I, you know, put him first. And so I really feel like he was just um, going through that, those developmental stages as a young man, finding his identity, crafting his identity. And, um, along with adjusting to having fame, like we talked about a little bit with Eddie. And I the only and I get what you're saying about oppositional defiant disorder, but I didn't see a lot of angry or irritable mood. There was really just the one argument on the phone where he left the Bible and he's like, that's what you want me to be? That's what you want me to be? Fine, that's what I'm gonna be. And um hung up the phone. But other than that, even even there, he wasn't just blatantly disrespectful to his father. He was just in strong disagreeance. Like, why aren't you, why aren't you listening to me? Why aren't you hearing me? Why aren't you accepting me the way that this group is? I love the choir boy. They ain't have to hit me upside my head with no bottle. (laughs) Okay, so I have a not real clinical at all, just, you know, observational diagnosis for Sarge. I diagnosed him with little man syndrome. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't do that to Sarge. Yeah. Oh 
<laughs> he did, because you're right. You're right. Several instances, he did have outbursts. And those were people just, that were bigger than him. Yeah. Exactly. He was overcompensating card. for his yeah. height by being aggressive or domineering in certain situations, like against the security guard, against Dresser. Just what I thought. And <laughs> when they tried to bring him the birthday cake, don't kiss me. What you diagnose Big Red with? Oh, Lord. Uh, I diagnose. Basically. Um, <laughs> So Big Red is, his is a little bit complicated just because we don't have background history on Big Red. We don't know like his growing up on if we have experienced these symptoms for an extended amount of time or before the age of 15. So I diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder. It would be conduct disorder if he didn't have these traits at 15 or younger, but if he did, then it would be antisocial personality disorder. And the criteria that I felt like that fit him for that specific diagnosis were the failure to conform to social norms with repeated, well, I mean, with respect to lawful behaviors as indicated by repeatedly performing tasks that are grounds for arrest, which <laughs> we definitely see that. Um, deceitfulness, down. exactly. Deceitfulness as indicated by repeated lying, use of aliases, or conning others for personal profit or pleasure, which is basically Big Red Records. Now, I'm just a small country boy yeah. with a little company. Yeah. No, Red. <laughs> um, irritability and aggressiveness as indicated by repeated physical fights or assaults in his situation with Bird. Reckless disregard for safety of self or others. And lack of remorse as indicated by being indifferent or to or rationalized having hurt, mistreated, or stolen from another. Like whole showing up to Jimmy's funeral after yeah. you had the man murdered. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah and I just also liked when he first met them and he said, I just love you guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, right there, that right there, I wouldn't trust him. If somebody did that, I'd be like, you know what? You're not trustworthy at all. Eleanor was on it. On Eleanor it right away. Like, like, right away. Eleanor, let's huh, a moment for all of the classiness and just the everything and the iconic yeah. legend that is Diane Carroll. She yeah. just like she could have just she could have not delivered a line and her essence would have just oozed yeah. all mm -hmm. of like she embodied the character with just class and ele elegance. She's just everything. And she's mm -hmm. such a classy lady. All she did was slap red with his <laughs> Hard. Hard. Slap curl. Slap his curl. I felt it. Man, my glass, my glasses went cricket when he got slapped. I was like, Jesus. <laughs> Slap the shit out that man, didn't she? She was such a class act though. Slap them and say, How dare you disrespect yeah. my husband? And then just get up. And that's yeah. it. Yeah. Somebody else, it'd have been a whole, it'd have been a whole thing. She Look. handled it so elegantly. But I think Eleanor was she was um Again, talking about the consciousness for, for some of these men is like, mm -hmm. she told him, she was like, I think you're just too trusting with these groups, you know? Yeah. Well, what about these people? And what about the Esquires? I feel like Jimmy actually had a disorder, uh, not a disorder, but he was too, he was too trusting. Mm -hmm. And it was at his, you know, at his demise, but I don't know if that's necessarily something that's diagnosable, more so um, a red flag. Did you all pick yes, up on that? Definitely. I didn't give him a full diagnosis either, but I did um, note that he did have a sense of blind optimism, 
which while optimism can be, you know, helpful and, and a, a, a positive quality, too much of it can have negative effects on your mental health and exacerbate other mental health um, illnesses or issues that somebody might have. And I felt that, but I feel like that wasn't the case for him because he had Eleanor. She was his balance. And I felt like that's why their marriage was so healthy because they complemented each other so well. Yes, they were both just amazingly fine and well-dressed and put together all of the time. So they complimented each other that way. But mm-hmm. I also felt like they they balanced each other out as well because why she looked at it from more of a pessimistic um, standpoint as far as working with the groups, like, no, this is what happens. This is the pattern that kept balanced with his blind optimism. And mm-hmm. I just wish that he would have took a little bit more note with Big Red because he had the experience of him printing his own records, giving the other, the DJs payola. Like he had that knowledge, but that optimism kept him and the bad experience with the Five Horsemen at uh, whatever record company they went to. It mm. uh, it kept, it still allowed him to enter into business with Red despite knowing the, the possible things that could go wrong there. But I felt like their relationship complemented each other. I agree. This is this is again. This is just my little insight that made me question. It um, is valid, sir. You are a professional. Yeah, I just like introducing stuff like that. That's just my. <laughs> it made me wonder his, and I like how you described. Well, you said blind optimism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't even know the term of that, but I wonder how much of his blind optimism is attached to the fact that we didn't see him and his wife with kids because most of the group were young boys. So was he, was that his part of parenting? Because he was a good mentor, a good male mentor, and he had a level of compassion that was like a evolving door and it was endless. So that's why he was able to lend himself over and over again to young boys. You had to talk that stuff, sir. I didn't uh, even put two and two together. Eleanor was working with the girls and he was working with the boys. Yeah, so possibly maybe her um, being more relaxed on what she said right away. You keep living, but she always supported him. Maybe mm-hmm. it was because she understood that passion and love because mm-hmm. she had young girls, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So it was just interesting just to kind of see that dynamic and to see how happy they both got to provide them with opportunities. Yeah. You see how excited she said, look what she we was. did. Yeah. Jimmy sense? has just, a surprise, guys. Exactly. Yeah. Just that moment of being able to be what we would look at as motherly or nurturing for both of them was like, to me was worth highlighting, worth thinking about like, wow, you know? So yeah, I just had to add that. I also want to say, fuck the police and whatever city that they was in that made them sing. I got nothing but love for you on the side of the road, taking something that was their passions. Like singing is their gift. It's their passion. And you force them, you make them to do it in a way that's unpleasurable to the, fuck them. I know. I got nothing but love for you, baby. And it was it was how he came at uh, yeah. <laughs> like it was it took everything to get it out. Yeah. And I'm sure it did, because they didn't and they shouldn't. And and then I think that that was really smart of Robert Townsend to then sing America afterwards and the crown knighthood and like he couldn't even get the brotherhood part out because these old corny police officers ain't showing no brotherhood we ain't got no brotherhood oh yeah. whack and yet and still it's it's happening to us 
And I think that was a perfect scene to go with the whole album cover. It was like back to back. Um, mm. Because even in that moment, they have to prove who they were, right? Mm. And even with the album cover with the crossover, they were having crossover uh, ain't nothing but a double cross. Like JT's mm. speech right there, that little that yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 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 to me that was very powerful because one of the things that they said, and I think I, I mentioned it, um, I wrote it down. But one of the things that were mentioned, someone I forgot which character said it, but they said, "Why we always have to cross over? Why can't they cross over to us?" Mm -hmm. And then they kind of went on, huh? It was, it was, that was part of JT's speech. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was just powerful because he kind of just highlighted like now is this, but then what's next? Right. Yes. And that's usually, even though it was a movie, that was like literally a life lesson big time is that once you do begin that process of crossing over or giving them permission to change you, it's not going to stop. Hmm. Yeah. Then you end up like Flash singing Flash. with the four <laughs> horsemen. <laughs> Don't end up like Flash, friends. Yeah. <laughs> Who wasn't a terrible person, but ended up being a terrible person because he joined the Four Horsemen. I think that's the moral of the story, guys. Yeah. Don't sell your soul to the devil because you will end up singing with the Four Horse, the Five Horsemen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -mm. I think that's a great place to end. So if you would like to support the show to help us get more content <laughs> out to you all, you can visit our website and follow the support the show link to become a Patreon member or donate on our Cash App. Now, we're happy to get the kind of money that jingles, but we rather the kind that folds. As always, be sure to follow us on Instagram at the DSM Podcast, and you can subscribe to our show wherever you get podcasts. While you're there, go ahead and leave us a comment because we are counselors and we actually care about what you have to say. Until next time, y'all, be sure to buy our merch and peace. Okay, bye.